to Subtext and Discourse, the podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney, owner and director of Berlin-based Gallery for Contemporary Art, Jarvis Dooney. In this week's episode, I'll be speaking with Melbourne-based artist Nina Ross. We were first in contact back in 2014 when Nina was based in Norway through an Australian Council grant and was exhibiting work in Oslo as well as the Month of Performance Festival in Berlin. A number of years later, we presented her work in the group exhibition Spatial Awareness together with Claire Ray, Mira Lu and Lin Wei, each of whom incorporated performance, the body and the relationship to their surroundings in their work. Nina was also the first artist predominantly working with video which we exhibited at Jarvis Dooney. We speak about a number of topics related to how an artist's practice changes over time, how our initial perception of the art world often doesn't reflect the lived experience, and what it means to be an artist in the age of corona. I should probably mention that Nina's son and adopted greyhound make a few appearances during our conversation, so you might notice them in the background. Though I imagine many single parents working from home and homeschooling during the pandemic can also relate to this. You can subscribe to Subtext Discourse wherever you consume your podcasts, and please share this episode with others who you feel may also find it relevant and interesting. With that being said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nina Ross. How long have you been active as an artist? Because if that was 2014, had you recently graduated? Or have you been kind of 10 years post-university as a professional artist in the field? Oh, gosh, it's such a good question because I don't have a clue. I um, So I did my undergrad when I was in my, you know, like I left school and, and went to university and, and did an undergrad in media arts at RMIT and then honours and then went to live in Norway for about three years. And then I came back and I think I started my master's at Monash Uni in, in fine art by research in maybe 2010 or 11. And then I think I finished in 2013. And then So I'd been back from Norway for a few years. Even though I studied media arts and when I lived in Norway, I always worked as a commercial photographer. Oh, okay. Yeah, and working either as, you know, first as a photographer's assistant and even a stylist and stylist assistant and studio manager. So always been around photography. And then when I came back from Norway and started my master in fine art, I, you know, I really left commercial photography and focused on more of a practice. So that's when I really started exhibiting and things like that was, yeah, once I got into my my master's work. Previous to that, I hadn't really exhibited greatly or or really pursued exhibiting because Mm -hmm. I I was living in Norway and learning a language and, and working as a commercial photographer and also in hospitality and just making work really. Yeah, well, what was the the catalyst or what was the inspiration then to make the switch from being, I guess, a, a working commercial photographer to going back to do your MFA and then start shifting to an artistic practice? Yeah, I think it was an interest in research and critical thinking and also mm-hmm. to expand my practice and maybe even to keep it going really because in Australia I feel that there – or I can, I can only, I guess, speak from my experiences in Melbourne. I shouldn't say Australia – there's a lot of funding cuts at the federal level. Mm-hmm. But Always or just recently? A lot in the last, oh, well, definitely severely in the last like 10, 15 years, extremely. I mean, the Victorian government's always been quite generous, but at the federal level, they've taken a lot of money away from individual artists or small to medium-sized organisations and mm-hmm. given it more towards the well-established institutions. So one way to keep a practice going in Australia or Melbourne is to study. So you were always, even as a commercial photographer, you always had an artistic thing parallel. Even as a commercial photographer, you're working to a brief, you've still got to come up with mm-hmm. ideas. So I think it 
it was the research and critical thinking that I was interested in and how to expand the practice. And I got sick of working as a commercial photographer and I didn't really enjoy it, actually, to be quite honest with you. But I still loved making work. So I I thought the masters would suit me in that way. I've noticed with your early work that it's a lot to do with language and to do with communication and even how culture is connected to language as well. Maybe it was a lot of the motivation to go down this research-led route from your experience living in Norway? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was interested originally, like my proposal for my master's was interested in light and the different light in Norway and Australia. You know, the mm-hmm. light with um, the midnight sun and the long summer days and the short winter days in Norway. As I started exploring that, I realized it was more like I, I was. I guess I was feeling like a disconnect between the light and I was really interested in how When I lived in Norway, I was pining for the brown Australian landscape and I I kept looking at the trees and I remember saying to my partner, like, it's so green here, as if something was wrong. (laughs) But the green's really green, I remember saying to my father-in-law. And as I started exploring the light, I realised that there were sort of other parts of being a foreigner that I was interested in and I can't remember exactly, but it turned into an exploration around language, as you said, and, and learning a language for someone else, you know, a partner. And obviously, as a privileged white woman going from one wealthy Western country to another, you know, it was a very- wasn't out of necessity. Yeah, exactly. And it didn't have all the the, the difficulties and and other things that you would have if you were a refugee or anything like that. It was, yeah, a very privileged thing. Because how did you end up in Norway? Ah, yes, for love. It was for love. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Because it's quite a- um... I think even when people come to other parts of Europe, it's yeah, it's generally because they've met somebody or it's specific for work that, oh, the company that I'm working for are here, so now I'm here. Unfortunately, because we are so isolated in Australia, learning a second language isn't really seen as a priority. One, because we already speak English, but two, because everything is so far from us that we think, well, when will we ever actually be able to apply that language? Yeah, and yeah. the European languages are perceived as a lot more attractive to learn. Like everybody wants to learn to speak French or Italian. It would be more practical for us maybe to learn one of the Asian languages because it's just there. But even how we're wired, was it okay for you trying to pick up Norwegian? Because it's like all of the Scandinavian languages aren't renowned for being easy to learn. I actually think coming from English, I had it very easy. Yeah? Oh. Yeah, it does feel like there's a bit of French, English, and I mean, it's a dramatic language, so it's not Mm -hmm. too bad. But just going back to what you were saying about Australia and languages, I think it's really difficult in Australia because we've got so many languages. And we have a lot of migrant backgrounds. It's not unusual for us. And even if you think about friends at school, oh, yeah, they speak Croatian as well. Growing up, we just think, oh, okay, that's I guess their parents are from there. That's nice. Mm -hmm. But we don't ever question, how come I don't speak a second language? Yeah, but that's what I'm I'm getting at. I think it's interesting. When I went to Norway, I realised they have English on their TV. So as opposed to somewhere like France or Spain where everything is dubbed, the Scandinavian countries have small populations, so they just have subtitles. So, yeah, if you're learning English at school and then you can apply it in the home by watching TV. But in Australia, we have so many different languages that we don't have that one that we need to depend on for economic or commerce reasons. For example, Scandinavia obviously have English and America has Spanish, but I guess we don't have one that we've chosen to go with. And I think that's doing us a disservice, really. I'm not saying we should just pick anyone. I believe it should be an Asian language. Yeah, most probably. thinking about that, actually, I mean, I've not been to Singapore for longer than a day, but their shared language is English a lot of the time. Mm. But if we had one language that was on 
RTV as well. Like I know ABC, they have shows now, some shows, both kids and adult shows in Mandarin. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you learn that at school, and unfortunately my son's not going to learn that at school, which annoys no. me because I think it's a great language to learn. He is learning and he, he will learn another Asian language, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. Indonesian, which is, I think, wonderful. Oh, it's still Indonesian. Yeah, my brother did that. Mm. Whereas we, we went, it was Japanese. Yeah, well, I had French, which was just ridiculous. Uh, I'm sorry <laughs> to say. I just feel that that was very colonial. You know, it was that British thing of, you know, learn the rival's language. Mm-hmm. And it was just outdated for someone growing up in the 80s in Australia, maybe. Yeah. Nothing against French. Obviously, it's a beautiful language and I can probably completely insulted it by speaking it, you know, with a bad accent, Australian accent. But yeah, and then again, you know, even all of that aside, there's however many Indigenous languages in Australia. There's, uh, sorry, First Nation languages. There's 300 and something. And why we're not learning them, I don't know. Do you know my greyhound is barking and I just have to okay, shush her yeah. up? <laughs> sorry, one minute. <laughs> Come on, on the bed. Come on, Jeddah. Sorry, Michael. Um, oh, okay. I have the greyhound on the bed with me. This is Jetta. She is a lockdown adoption. Where is she? Yeah. She was a bad runner, so she was relinquished to a foster Yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah, and I can relate because I'm more a swimmer than a runner, so I can't run. So we're, <laughs> we're good. And now I'm, I'm so sorry, Michael. Now everyone's in here. There's so many aspects to language, whether it's mother tongue or even patriarchal language. It's the kind of subject that just keeps giving. That's still something I still have a really big interest in that. And even though I've been working in a more collaborative roles of late, there's always these ideas about language percolating in the background that I think I'll always have that side to my practice as well. Yeah, it's funny, all the collaborative practice I've been doing of late has been so fascinating and expansive and rewarding, but I I am very interested in still in video and how, for me, it's such an accessible medium. And in a time of COVID and shutdown, there's not much of an art scene at the moment in Melbourne because nothing's happening. We're all in lockdown. Yeah. I can still have that video practice. So it's quite rewarding in that way. Sorry, I guess we're jumping a tangent here, but do you think then that video is a bit more accessible to people and it's easier to relate to than it is with photography? Like how I got into video was that I had a friend who had a 5D Mark II or three. I realised that language, you know, with my master's interested in language, I need mm-hmm. to use video and the cameras, the DSLRs came with video capabilities. So it was, yeah, very accessible for me. Were you doing performative work before or some kind of performance work? No. If I think about when I spoke with David a few weeks back and with other artists, they're using video, but they're not using video to document a happening or an event or something. Like the video is the work. And I Mm. guess with yours, it's also very much the case that the video is the piece, like you're performing and you're editing the pieces as well. It's not a, it's not a record. Exactly. Like that is the work. Yeah, exactly. It's not a documentation of a performance. It's performance for Mm -hmm. the camera. How performance is used now in video Mm -hmm. and how expansive that is. I think that's really been quite exciting. And that's, I guess, like a bit of a a thing, definitely in Melbourne, how women have used and white women have used performance for the camera to make work. But it's happening a lot in Melbourne, you're finding? Yeah, I think there's a lot of (laughs) women doing it. Yeah, maybe it's quietened down a bit, but the last 10, 15 years, definitely. Yeah, there's an interesting push. I mean, I know when we were finding artists to collaborate with and work with, we always managed to find, and I don't know if it's just the work that we're naturally drawn to, a balance of men and women creating work, whereas in more traditional mediums like painting, it would certainly be weighted more to men, maybe because photography and particularly video doesn't have the same history Mm. that you can just access the tools 
and maybe the bar for entry is a bit lower that you don't need to have gone to whatever prestigious place to train, that there definitely were a lot more women involved in that medium. Like, Do you think that's maybe also why it's a bit more accessible for people that don't prescribe to the standard of this is what an artist is? Yeah, definitely. I also think that, well, maybe it's just who I'm aware of or, or who I know in, in, in the Melbourne art scene, but it's funny when you were talking, like I was thinking about how there are all these women, but then when there's these photography exhibitions at state institutions, there's always like the token woman with the three white men or the, the two white men. Yeah. That's the photographers in Melbourne that are always shown. I don't know if I can name names. I guess I will. You know, it's beautiful work like Bill Henson, who's got some great work, you know, and he's been around for a while, but he's always included. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then there's always like one or two younger photographer, men photographers. Yeah, and then the token female. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot and I thought maybe, without sounding too critical, maybe it was curators being not lazy but uninterested in anything outside of a white gaze really. You know, maybe unintentionally, yeah. but like I thought it's still very heavily weighted towards the white male photographer. But then I realised that, and this actually came through in my collaborative practice, activist work, that there's gatekeepers that are pursuing that still, that sort of mm -hmm. um, traditional male photographer, photography work, yeah. They're, they're, still, they're still the ones with the voice, they're, yeah. And, you know, like there's a lot of Indigenous Australians that have used, sorry, First Nations that have used Photography is a really, in a really exciting and outstanding way to give a voice mm -hmm. to their experiences in, in settler culture. And so what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of work there, but it's, I don't really feel like it's picked up by yeah. keepers higher up above the curators is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't lie with curators being uninterested. I think that in the arts in Australia, if you're at a state institution, it is really hard as like a, a younger arts worker, even with a lot of experience as an arts worker curator. Well, I mean, you're more likely to select work that's has a better chance of being approved than taking a risk and choosing something that's maybe considered daring, mm. even if it isn't that different. But if I liken it to our experience of looking for different work, we didn't look to think, okay, we need to make sure we pick a female, we need to pick somebody that's of a different background, or we need to pick different from the norm. In the first moment, we were attracted to the work and then afterwards, it's like, oh, actually, look, we've got more females than males just by chance. Although we always wanted to make sure that we had a even distribution of people and that we had a level of diversity, it was the work we were drawn to first and not the people that had made the work. It mm -hmm. just happened and it was nice, obviously a nice coincidence that the work we were selecting was of people of a more diverse background and that's why I wonder if it's easier for guys to make more mainstream things for acceptance than it is for people that aren't the dominant voice to produce mainstream work. Mm, mm. I'm not sure. I just always felt that the more experimental and more thought-provoking work was made by the minority groups or what are considered minority groups in that have the most dominant voices and they were less likely to get exposure because if the work is more difficult, then it's, it's a greater challenge to attract audiences. Whereas if it's already something that's accepted, then they know, well, this is a safer thing to present. So we're at less of a risk of losing out on audiences or sales or something. Yeah, it does appear that <laughs> often here that, yeah, it's a safe bet or it's just that the gatekeepers have their buddies. I'm not sure. 
Yeah, it's funny. I think photography is sort of got a bit of an identity crisis or I don't know if it's an identity crisis actually or if it's changed so quickly and it's so accessible that there's this disconnect with what people are doing and what's considered maybe fine art or I don't I don't know or or people don't know almost what to make of photography in terms of I'll give you an example. I remember at the Centre for Contemporary Photography, I had a show, I think it was last year there, I had a conversation with Adam, the director, and he was talking about how they've really tried or they're trying to bring back the different kinds of the variety, expand the variety of photography that's shown there. So it's not just the inner city cool (laughs) fine art photography of Melbourne, but include commercial photographers again, include photojournalists and and make it more of a photography institution again yeah not actually not saying it wasn't but just bringing a photography community together all aspects of it and not being these are my words like snobby about it Mm -hmm. and I think there is still that yeah that disconnect in photography of that's fine art or that's just photo documentary so that's not high art or yeah yeah I think it's it's like a bit of a troubled medium still even the fact that some of the more renowned photographic artists are put into the contemporary art box. Mm. If you think about Cindy Sherman, she's a contemporary artist. Mm. She's a photographer, mm. but she's a contemporary artist. Yeah. And Gregory Crudson, he's a fine artist. Yeah. He's not a photographer, I- even though he is a photographer, but yeah. they're in very different camps somehow. I find that so interesting. I, I, I can't quite understand it, why we, like the naming and the boxing of different people, like if you're a photographer or a lens-based artist, where does one finish and the other begin? And what I find interesting about that is there's like a um, a snobbery, an attitude about it. A hierarchy almost. Yeah, hierarchy. Yeah, that's the word. And it's to photography's detriment, I think, because it sort of splits audiences up. I guess if you compare it to video art, that's it. They're video productions that aren't television and they aren't cinema. There's no division between that unless it's through genres, but then it is just within that same medium, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Thinking before what you were saying about female representation and things like that in Melbourne, and then going back to your individual practice, the early works you did were quite language-based, but then after you, well, you can say this in two ways, after you gave birth to your son or after you became a mother, Mm. that also had quite an impact on the kind of work that you're making. Yeah, definitely, because I... (laughs) I had a dependent, you know, I couldn't go without things anymore. Like you can <laughs> when you're a, I guess, privileged white Melbourne-based artist. So, oh, I don't know. Like your priorities, I guess, had changed. Yeah. And, I mean, apparently years ago I, I heard, who was it? Oh, there was a, a famous Melbourne artist, I can't remember who it was, said that when Australians get to, um, or often when artists get to about, in Australia, get to about 37, 38, their practice really drops off because of responsibility and family and things like that. I guess I started looking around and seeing, and I'd, I'd, I guess also I'd, I'd had a practice. Like, I, you know, as I said, mm-hmm. yeah, like I had that commercial aspect and I lived in Norway and then I'd, I'd done my master's and then been practising for a few years and then had Archie and realised, oh, hang on, like sort of now I know what's going on in the scene, whereas before I didn't, yeah. I wasn't in it. Yeah, you were a professional. Yeah, so I guess I started looking around and being a bit suspicious, or not suspicious, but yeah. um, interested in in the way it all works. I guess how a lot of the collaborative practice started happening was that I did a residency at a Centre for Everything with Will Foster and Gabriella De Vecchi. And where's that? It's in Melbourne. Gabrielle and Will run that. And I did a residency with them. It was with about 20 other 
local artists. It was about activism and art. Out of that, Gabrielle and I started the Artist Committee. Gabrielle's got a, a big history of looking at ethics and art, the intersection of money, ethics and culture. We were looking at what was going on around us with the treatment of asylum seekers in Australia in offshore and onshore detention centres and we knew that the National Gallery of Victoria had commercial partnerships with Wilson Security who were a company that had committed human rights abuses against asylum seekers and refugees. The residency was very much, well, one thing I really got out of it was how successful grassroots organisations or activities can be and how important they are, but also as artists, the skills we have. And it might be really simple things like someone wants to do something and I've got a studio with all this free paint, or it might be... You know how to be resourceful. Yeah. Or like artists are really good at upskilling. You don't know how to you know use a program. You just quickly learn online, figure it out or ask a friend. The collaborative side of my work started with Gabrielle. We started this campaign against the Victorian government. You know, I should say it wasn't just, even though it was against the Victorian government because we lived in Victoria, Wilson Security, I believe, provide a lot of different commercial partnerships with governments around Australia, state and federal. But it was about claiming our space, which is supposed to be the National Gallery. You know, it wasn't just about how institutions are run and and partnerships within sponsorship and commercial partnerships, but it was also about how as workers we engage and the precarious mm. nature of arts being an artist or arts worker in Australia. For me, I see artists or arts workers in the same position. Like, yes, art workers do get often a wage and mm-hmm. a contract and superannuation, but they're often in the same precarity in many other ways. The places that they work for are often beholden to their sponsors or their donors. Absolutely. And even, you know, what I was hinting at before, or maybe not so much hinting, but saying before about arts workers being really at the mercy of management and people higher up in institutions. I guess I, after having Archie, really questioned, what is a practice in Australia? And how do you maintain a practice? And I also had been practicing for long enough to realize that you get to a certain point And it's really hard to go any further. Like you're sort of still competing for the same piece of the pie, but you've got all this extra experience and skills and knowledge, but you're still competing for the same amount, if that makes sense. You can't progress. You can only progress so far in many ways. Yeah. How sustainable is it as a career choice or is it a career choice? Yeah. Because when we compare it to things like design or fashion or even going into cinema Mm. or into acting a lot of the times we don't necessarily think of that as a viable career path because we know how difficult it would be it feels like at least or maybe it's just as you say the people that we're surrounded by that leaving school and becoming an artist that's something that i can do as a job Mm. but then once you have spent enough time in the field and you're around enough other people and you realize how many alternative sources of income that you need in order to do that then you realize is it more of a Oh, what's the word? Not like a profession, but it's more that that's that's something that you do, but that's not how you earn your money. Mm. You can earn prestige and acceptance and acknowledgement, and you can have this career, but it isn't a financial career because those things are always so intertwined that if you study architecture, you're an architect and you earn money through your architecture. But doing art a lot of the time, it doesn't matter how much you're generating and how much you're putting out there. If no one's paying for that, then you're not getting any money for what you're making. That is kind of the difficult balance from it because if you're not selling work or if you haven't found a way of commodifying your creative output, then what do you do? Mm. 
maybe because of our exposure or our perceived available options are limited to this prize, that grant, then the pool just keeps getting more full of people, but the available opportunities for progress stay the same. Yeah. Or you just, they get diluted because they need to go to more people. Yeah. And meanwhile, on the side, a lot of artists are working in universities teaching, but Mm -hmm. that's become highly sessionalized. So that's precarious as well. So it's even harder to have a practice. You know, and then in COVID, a lot of people that have worked in other industries, they've, so they've got an arts practice, but maybe they work in hospitality or retail or whatever, and mm-hmm. those jobs have been completely wiped out because of COVID and the lockdown. Yeah. Where's the income? See, it's it's quite, oh, I don't even know how to begin. You know, yeah, with Archie, I would look at him and now think, do I want to spend $800 on a print <laughs> or do I actually just want to, <laughs> I don't know, like, buy a lot of food and have some friends over and just spend it on the electricity bill and nappies and have some nice food. And I'm no less of an artist for wanting that. As they say, priorities change, but the value of that $800 changed. You know, it was so much more than $800 or however much that figure is. You know, I started having these conversations with other women in Melbourne that were having babies around the same time, like Jesse Scott and Lizzie Sampson and how... That $800, say, that would cost to make a print, maybe I want to put that in a bank account and have a holiday or save for something that I need. Mm. And then, like, in having those conversations, what I realised was how privileged everyone in Melbourne is. I'm worried about my superannuation because I don't have very much (laughs) superannuation because I've been working as an artist and also, you know, I've always had a side job. But it's actually the reason why there's such precarity and it's not changing, I feel, is because... A lot of people are really privileged and rich and you don't realise it. So they're not worrying about superannuation because they don't have to. No. (laughs) Yeah, and it just, oh, just sort of opened Pandora's box having a baby. What came out of all this collaborative practice was finding a place for me and what I wanted in the arts and out of my art practice and who I wanted to be involved with and things like that. As I said, with Lizzie Sampson and Jesse Scott, we sent out a survey about being an artist parent in Melbourne and we knew what was happening from our friends and anecdotal evidence, but getting solid evidence of other people's experiences, you know, recorded evidence. And what we discovered was that what was going on in the art world was exactly what was happening in broader Australia, which is that women are still predominantly the primary caretakers and have the less paying job. So if someone's mm-hmm. going to give up work, it's the woman to do the caring, that there's, you know, yeah, a lack of government funding for childcare or it's inadequate and that people's attitude in the arts towards mothers and family is very negative. You know, like I remember one experience that really stood out for me out of this survey was this girl said she had a, she was pregnant and she had a, I think it was a 12-month residency at a local council or even city of Melbourne, I believe it was. Apparently, she had this year residency there. And during that residency, as soon as she gave birth, she could no longer attend at least a minimum of three days a week in the studio. And so she had to forfeit the rest of the residency. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's no... You know, there's that inability to be flexible. And even the way one woman spoke about another woman just as being a suburban mum. So the attitudes felt very archaic and disappointing. Is that a lot of the experience of being a mother and how other people's perception towards you has changed so much? Was that a lot of the reason that you turned your artistic output into a socially engaged practice rather than just making objects for people to buy, that it is more about community engagement, raising awareness and using your 
position as an artist to help raise other people's voices? I guess because you have the flexibility in the position as an artist that you can say, look, we need to pay attention to this. This is something that needs to be addressed because we're ignoring it. Yes, definitely. It's like what I said earlier, I realised after having a practice for a while that I did have skills and I did have a platform and I wasn't powerless. I also think that I'd been working towards showing work in galleries and that there mm-hmm. was more out there. There was more ways of communicating with a broader audience and that the gallery felt quite limited, to be honest. You often feel like you're preaching to the converted. Your audience can be limited, I guess. It felt really exciting that I could show works in different ways and not be limited to other people choosing my work or deciding on my work and where it's shown and things like that. I guess it was more that I was, not more, but additionally, I was interested in collective action. And I all of these things I was looking at, like the precarity of work, being a mother or a parent, being an artist, having a side job, that practicing as a visual artist in Melbourne can be so individualistic and mm-hmm. that these things could easily get better or change and develop for the better if there was more a collective voice. And it was through doing the work for the artist committee and then Out of the artist committee came the artist subcommittee and we made a work called Arts Log, as in Mm -hmm. log, of working as artists, which was an online database of people logging their stories of the good, bad, medium, neither experiences of working in the arts that I realised how stuck we are as artists because it's so individualistic and how much better it could be if we collaborated or collectivized. Yeah, I've always been surprised by that, actually. I mean, I remember it from when I was active as a musician, I suppose, playing in bands and thinking, why don't more bands support each other? But it's the same, if not worse, sometimes in the arts that artists are always saying, come to my show, come see my exhibition. But then you would never see them at anybody else's exhibition, or they would only go to the really big things. And you wonder, like, why are you just going to the Museum of Modern Art when you could be going to all these project spaces or small galleries that are likely to show your work instead of complaining that the National Institution doesn't represent you guys enough? Mm. You don't even support your own community. Mm. Well, how can you expect anybody else to support you? Hopefully, through this period, it'll cause a lot of other artists to maybe engage in a bit of self-reflection and question, have I been doing enough to support my community? not just saying people aren't supporting me and that there isn't enough support. Like, what am I contributing? Yeah, it works both ways. Because how has it been for you? Because you were part of, I mean, I've written them down here. There's the Artist Committee, Arts Log, Artist Parents, Imagining a Future Collective, Artist Union. You're part of a lot of different proactive organisations parallel to your own artistic work that you're producing. But these ones are definitely more about bringing people together. The fact that you've got safety in numbers, you've got more voices amplifying a message. How has that been getting support from within the artistic community? Are some people reluctant and they're thinking, if I'm affiliated with this, then other people might see me a certain way, so I don't want to take part in it, even though I think it's great? Or do you get a lot of people saying, I'll join it, but what are you going to do for me? Or some people unreservedly say, yes, this is a good, I want to be a part of it. How is the overall response and engagement? Well, it always starts off really positive <laughs> and, <laughs> and enthusiastically, but It's really tricky. I don't actually know how to say this because I don't mean it in a judgmental or derogatory way, but most people, like I I completely understand why this happens because it is the nature of precarity, but most people are really enthusiastic, say love what you're doing, might even want to get involved, but then it becomes difficult. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. sign that thing because 
they're an arts curator and there's only a handful of institutions, curatorship jobs they can apply for at certain institutions. So you get stuck. Most people are very encouraging though. They say, you know, you're doing great things or important work or whatever. And then a few step up. But I don't want that. Yeah, I don't want that to sound... um, It doesn't, but I think I can definitely relate to that by running the gallery. When you were saying before about, okay, I've got $800 here. I can do all these things for myself, look after my family, or I could organize a group exhibition and do a community event. If you're the only one that's sacrificing things to make something happen and you're not really getting any kind of feedback or if it is just, oh, good work, you can't help but question, why am I doing this? If the people that I believe in and I want to support don't really seem that bothered, why should I care? Yeah, it gets tired. And it's real. It's kind of a real internal struggle I find with me because I think I want to do something good, but then am I just doing it because I like the feeling of that mm. and bringing people together? Is it a selfish thing, even though I feel like I'm helping a community? Mm. Yeah, definitely. But I think with the art, the visual arts, I should say, not all art forms, but the visual arts, again, in Melbourne, is that it's that thing of everyone is kept busy because of the precarity. Mm. They are trying to balance the job and the family and the practice. So if they do have five minutes, it will go into one of those other things and not be able to go into collective action. So, yeah, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, that's what the, that's the whole point. That's what they want. That's mm-hmm. what the capitalists, <laughs> neoliberalists want. Yeah. So um, is to keep everyone busy. So one thing I've been thinking about a lot I actually haven't got my head around it. So so I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, but I was and it, it goes on from what you were saying just then about organizing shows and things. I've been thinking like it's quite a bizarre concept to have a practice as an artist. So you have an idea and then you apply for a show or you get a show and you put all your effort into that show and then hope that someone will see something and you'll get another opportunity out of it. Like it's it's a very it's quite like obviously it's very privileged, but it's more than that. It's quite it's actually quite bizarre that like you have an interest and that you want to pursue this one idea like language that you think is interesting and you want everyone else to enjoy it the way you do and then like your work and then hope that you get more things out of that or something. It's quite strange. Yeah, it is. And I think when I do coaching workshops here with different artists for how to get into the art world and we talk about the different goals and having timelines and realizing, okay, by six months I want to have done this, by in a year, two years I want to have achieved this goal. And when a lot of people say about, oh, I want to get representation, I want to do this, I want to have more exhibitions. But then when you break that down, you think, okay, so if the goal is to get an exhibition, what happens next? I think the goals within art sometimes don't make sense when you look at them from outside if you step outside of the I guess the machine and look at why you're doing it what is the ultimate goal a room of people looking at your work is that the ultimate goal or is there meant to be some greater takeaway from it yeah. and no one asks the questions but then we don't think enough about it because we're so used to this rhythm of making work putting it into a gallery hoping that somebody buys it and then making more work and continuing this cycle. And when you think of it in terms of commerce and in terms of supply and demand, you realise how impossible it is to make it sustainable long-term. The amount of money that you need to invest in creating art in the hope that someone buys it to have in their house, yeah, it's almost impossible. It's not impossible, but neither is winning the lotto. Mm. It's possible. Mm. The chances of winning are really, really tiny, Mm. but it's not impossible. Mm. And it's almost the same with producing art and art objects. 
even if you were selling work and you produced a few pieces each year, if you only turned over like ten or $20,000, you think, well, I could just get a normal job mm. and earn more than that mm. or study something really heavy and then earn a really lucrative amount of money. That's often the time I think when I talk with artists as well and say, oh, I, w- I want to do this as a career and have a, a sustainable job out of it. It's like there's maybe 500 people in the world that can only do their artwork. And even when I've met other really established people that were also active as commercial photographers, it's only in their later twilight years that they've turned 60 and they said, you know, now I don't have to do any commercial work. I can purely focus on my artistic work because I'm at this point in my career. Mm. Like when they're over 50. Yeah. (laughs) But somehow when we go to university and everything else, we're told if you work really hard, if you get into these shows, if you do this, then by 25 or by 30, you'll be an established artist and you'll be getting shows around the world and you'll be earning this amount of money. There's such a disconnect, I think, between the perception of what the art world is and the reality once you're within it. Because even people that go to all the shows and everything else, so much of it is dependent on outside money that it is almost It's almost like a lifestyle, really, Mm. going to the events, having exhibitions, being a part of a community, that it's independently funded, but then it presents a false reality that you can enter that field and have a sustainable career. Definitely. (laughs) It's it's bizarre. It's also interesting because how much do you have to work to get the equivalent of a wage that is sustainable, like an annual income, that would be so much work in the arts that you wouldn't actually be able to do it. Yeah, I don't think there would be enough hours in the day yeah, like, like, to physically do it. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, exactly. It is that disconnect that you're talking about with art, you know, what you learn at art school. Now thinking, because I, I did used to do some sessional teaching and then my partner actually died, Archie's dad, so now I need a better job. So I am actually, uh, my love of of language and acquisition and learning, whether it's learning a language or just learning, I am interested in studying speech therapy or speech pathology so that I Mm -hmm. can have that sustainable work-life balance, I guess, where I can provide, but I can also have the benefits that come with that job, like holiday pay and things like that, and then have a practice on the side instead of trying Well, I guess I I haven't really been interested in teaching for a while now because, yeah, I found it really difficult. I really loved it. Actually, the truth is I was supposed to go back to it, but then my husband got randomly diagnosed with brain cancer and then, I yeah, I I was caring for him and my son, Mm -hmm. our son. But also it wasn't just that though. The teaching, you know, I found difficult because I gave a lot more than maybe what I should have as well. You know, you're not really supported as a sessional teacher, so... Yeah, I think I've heard that from a lot of different teachers, actually. And I think that's why sometimes it's easy to take advantage of teachers because they care about their students and they want the best for their pupils. You'll put in extra time and you'll sacrifice some of your own well-being for the benefit of the students because you care about what happens to them. Unfortunately, that's often a, a caring or a compassion can sometimes be used against you yeah and it's hard like you have to really teach yourself not to give and then do you want to be like that though a lot of sessional teachers like most or everyone I know has trouble with that that balance and it's interesting with COVID and the lockdown in Melbourne what will come out of it in terms of of the arts and how how the arts will move forward will it be back to business as usual including the precarity and all the problems or is there a way forward that's different Gabrielle with me proposed an art strike and I think it would be a great time to do an art strike which would be a, mm-hmm. a strike from showing not making 
I think it's a really good opportunity to request some things collectively. But I just don't know how. How have things changed locally then for you? Because I know internationally, and at least in the, the part of the art world that is written about and that people pay more attention to, I guess we're talking here more from a market perspective, but a lot of mid-range and smaller galleries, because you're not able to show anymore and because the art fairs aren't happening and because art is usually a discretional purchase that you use with your extra income like any kind of entertainment that you engage in or any other form of patronage because of the economic impact of the pandemic people that would let's say buy a few new pieces buy a few pieces of art every year or get one or two things each season just because that's their hobby they like to do that some people like to buy clothes or go traveling other people like to buy art because they want to be part of that that community as a direct result of fear for wages and for income and worrying about the future and security, you're not buying art anymore. A lot of the galleries that would normally be already walking a tightrope anyway just to keep the doors open, I think a lot of had to close. And then that's a big change within the field. But then what's the flow and effect of that? Well, I'm just thinking one of your questions before about moving forward with COVID and, and being overcommitted and let's say less privileged now that I'm a, a single mom. You know, I've had a lot of conversations in lockdown with Lizzie and Jesse, the two artists I collaborate with from Artist Parents, about where I see my practice and what I want out of it now. Mm-hmm. That's definitely changed. Being in lockdown, I, I guess I've got an appreciation for more making and less showing, mm-hmm. which I know doesn't equal an income. And I think it's really important to show work, but maybe spending more time making and have less shows, but maybe one important show or, so, or something like that. Yeah, it's been really a time to question how I see my practice and how I want to move forward because the circumstances have changed, both my individual ones, but also with Mm -hmm. COVID. Yeah, I definitely have a greater appreciation just of making. You know, I don't know if I should admit this, but I'm a bit tired of exhibiting, like, (laughs) to be honest. Of what? I'm a bit tired of exhibiting. It's a lot of work. And, yeah, maybe there's different ways of doing it. As in exhibit, but just different ways. Well, I know. I definitely think you're right. I guess our processes, like generally speaking, but specific to the art, the idea that, okay, I'll make something and then I can exhibit it. If people say that that's okay, then I can make another one and then continue this cycle. But certainly because there have been no openings, there have been no exhibitions and everything else, you still want to make things because mm. it's this compulsion that you have to create. But then when the outlet isn't there, it's like, well, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Am I doing this for me? Is this some other unfulfilled need that I have to produce this stuff? And unfortunately, I think we focus less on the creation and the act of creativity than we do on the end result or how much the end result costs or how important it is for whatever reason. Do you, with the different groups and organizations as well, like have maybe workshops for other people to understand the importance of creativity or there's different ways that we can express express things we couldn't normally otherwise. So if people have sport as an outlet or they do other things to to relax or to separate from day-to-day life, artistic expression is a nice way of doing that, to work through your thoughts and to feel in a different state of mind. Because I know for us, the lockdown has been really good for a work-life balance, but as it's kind of shifting now the demands are going up and it's difficult to try to be in every place at once and still do the social distancing, do all the masks and everything else. The fact you've said, yeah, I'm making more, but I'm less interested in exhibiting. 
have you thought about different exhibition formats or ways of engaging with audiences through the groups within this period? Like, I know you said you were thinking about doing more video work or video work has been useful to this period because we're online all the time watching things. Yeah, um, I haven't had too many conversations with the, the groups that I work with other than the artist parents. It's interesting, like I haven't figured out an answer and I'm completely okay with that, which is really strange because, you know, when you're in the arts, everything feels so important and urgent and oh, I don't know necessary I guess but I'm quite happy to sit in the discomfort of not knowing actually mm -hmm. it's really strange I never thought I'd ever get to that point yeah not being sure but seeing what unfolds I think is actually quite quite exciting yeah I guess I also because I don't have a practice that's got like a, a real commercial aspect, so um, a commercial mm -hmm. outcome. So yeah, I'm in a different position to others. All I know is that I'm I'm eager. I'm very eager to get back on the camera once uh, the video camera once school goes back in term four, if it does. There's a Melbourne-based photographer Morgana McGee who is a photo artist, and she and I have spoken about. You know, there's a lot of women photographers that that have been around in Melbourne or Australia for a very long time and just for whatever reason haven't got, I guess, the recognition. So we've been speaking about different things like curating a show. You know, there's these women that have been working as photo artists who have such an extensive practice and, yeah, they just they haven't been given a look in. So just giving a voice to their work and them, yeah, whether that be through curating a show or it's also a bit of wait and see. I have to sort of see what, what comes out of COVID can't remember exactly how extensive your lockdowns were, but I walk around in circles, feel like I'm doing nothing, but I'm working, homeschooling, cleaning, doing everything just in a very small apartment. A bit of space would help, <laughs> you know, like to see what happened. We need, I need a bit of space to, to see what, what will be revealed. Sorry, it's a very long-winded way of saying got to get through the next few weeks of lockdown, really. Lockdown's taken precedence over everything else, obviously. Yeah. Well, I think you also maybe without realising it, have also raised a really important point that for a lot of artists, they are in very much a position of privilege. And now, because like you say, you're a single parent, you've got Archie to look after, you've got to do homeschooling. And because you're the primary or the maybe the only caregiver for him, mm. that you have to sacrifice certain things. And you've only got so many hours in the day and you've only got so many resources and things to kind of spread around. It's more difficult to prioritise making artwork because you've got to meet all of these basic needs to start with and then artwork and conceptual thought and philosophical reflection is at the top of Maslow's hierarchy and needs and it's like, oh, maybe when I'll get all of these things done first and then maybe <laughs> I can get up to the next level of the pyramid and hopefully I can actually do something mm. because right now I've got far too many other things to contend with to really even entertain that thought, unfortunately. There's just this expectation that we all can work from home, like, we all need to be able to have access to the internet, good internet as well, or, yeah, a safe environment. And that's a huge expectation or onus that's on the individual. But with, so, but with a lot of your work, though, you are looking at a lot of these clear goals of feminism and that form of activism and raising of awareness that quite a number of your works that you've produced, particularly, well, I would say even with the language ones, maybe indirectly, but... You can see the link from that because it is a lot to do with not just your identity but how you're perceived and even when you're learning the language, you're learning it for your partner 
and even the earlier videos you had of whilst you were pregnant that people felt that they could just assume certain things about you because you were expecting a child. And then when you became a mother, people feel <laughs> within their rights to say, oh, well, you should be doing this for your child. You should be doing that for your child. And that you have less control over your identity because other people have certain expectations of your role as a female or as a woman that you should be there to support your partner. You should be there to serve your child. You should be there to support the household. And all of these other things are, I think, unconsciously, without us knowing, and even when other people say it in an innocent kind of a caring way, that, oh, your stomach's this round, so you must be having a girl, or make sure they eat enough of this because you want them to grow up to be a certain thing or whatever, that we don't realise the amount of pressure as well. And that already exists anyway. But then when you put the corona thing on top of that, that does make it a lot more difficult. It's complicated, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I really appreciated you summing up my work. Thank you. I never thought about it like that. But one thing that I was thinking, I am interested in equality. I'm trying, you know, like I'm interested in how that plays out in real life or inequality, how inequality plays out in real life, whether it's through something small and personal, like being able to have a voice or something bigger and political. Yeah, you hinted to feminism and I definitely had my own journey into feminism. You know, for me, feminism is not about choice. It's about equality for all. I hope you enjoyed hearing the insights from Nina Ross and the evolution of her artistic practice to one which focuses on activism and social engagement. In the show notes, you'll find links to each of the subjects we spoke about, including the various organisations and initiatives that Nina is involved with, such as Arts Log, Artist Parents and Imagining a Future Collective. As always, I welcome any comments, questions and feedback to this and any previous episodes of the podcast. If you haven't already, I encourage you to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on your preferred streaming platform and share it with your like-minded friends. That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.